Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're delighted to have Eirik Werners on, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at the global energy company Equinor, which itself is aiming to be a leader in the energy transition. However, that's a transition that is in no way easy. Challenged by complexities across technologies, geographies, policy, and geopolitical volatility. And some of these challenges have yet really made it into public awareness. Even the most optimistic forecasts still see us going through 1.5 degrees centigrade increases in the coming years. In this episode, Eirik gives us an update on the European energy crisis, and the coming winter, as well as looks broadly across the entire energy transition, complexities, opportunities, and challenges that both the broader industry faces, as well as energy majors in particular. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It really does help support the show and expand it to a broader audience, and therefore allow us to continue to get great guests on to talk about all matters, topics, and trends related to the energy and commodities world. And finally, I hope you enjoy the episode. Eirik, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to join you. So we're having a discussion around and using the terminology of a report that you put out, walls and bridges in the energy transition, and just really digging a little bit into the broader complexity and the lift that that represents. However, it would be remiss if we didn't talk about this year and this coming winter, given, given your role as Chief Economist at Equinor, where do we stand right now? I mean, the sort of the general sense is that a bit of a bullet was dodged winter 22-23 as it was warmer than expected. And, you know, we didn't see sort of the, the natural gas depleted as we could have done. Is there a bit of complacency in the market about 23? Where do we stand? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, definitely we're standing at, in a market which is still on the edge type of problems that could occur if uh, if events or weather or changes in the markets turn against us some way or the other. So uh, it looks very well in terms of, uh, of storage levels in Europe right now for gas. Prices have come significantly down and are relatively stable and could even go further down for a while during the summer. Storage levels at the end of the winter season will by all by all signals be excellent. Uh, so then the question is, how does the next winter play out, both in terms of potential even further shortages in terms of, of the Russian gas volumes that actually come into Europe through the south in terms of weather, uh, which if it's very different than last winter, we will have a demand increase in terms of uh, manufacturing and other types of gas users. Uh, how are they able to continue to drive some reductions in, in demand? So there's a lot of uncertainty around it, but, but uh, we did dodge a bullet. Some of the changes that took place in in Europe in terms of both getting alternative sources of gas in was uh, impressive, and uh, and then also the the the, the ability of of the, the different types of of demand centers to adjust their uh, their both their production and their demand. Uh, some behavioral changes as well in terms of indoor temperatures and so on was also pretty impressive. But you can't do that again forever. Where do we stand sort of structurally? So couple of comments we, we don't know what the weather's going to be like but last time we covered lng on this podcast look there were significant new terminals being built to, to to capture cargoes coming into europe 
where do we stand there and and obviously i guess especially with the recent you know when this episode goes out who knows what might be going on in russia but you know a couple of weekends ago there was some significant events around uh, wagner and so forth how what percentage of europe's gas still comes from that southern route from russia and is anyone giving any thought to that potentially being turned off if if we do see a collapse yeah no we i guess we think that the likelihood of that southern route collapsing is is fairly low but it but it is uh, and i i guess we're talking about uh, 10 15 percent of of uh, european gas coming that way still and uh and but of course the 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 most impactful or more, most of the impact from from any event turning even worse than it is now both on the both in terms of the the actual war uh, but also internally in russia would would also be more impacts in terms of risk premiums in any market uh, it it would be would be impacts on on the overall level of economic growth etc cetera, etc cetera, as well in terms of where we stand structurally on on other sources of supply um, we have to remember that all the LNG that went to Europe last year and through the winter could have had alternative outlets. There was not that much of a supply increase in LNG last year. We expect supply to increase significantly over the next years, but it takes time. That's the supply that Europe was able to pull could otherwise have gone to Asia. It didn't because Asia couldn't afford to pay the same prices. And as a consequence, uh, the use of coal picked up in countries uh, in Asia that otherwise would have used slightly more gas. So CO2 emissions went up as well. And uh, we just got the 2022 energy statistics out and uh, global CO2 emissions went up by by close to a percent, uh, driven by increased coal demand, increased oil demand that more than compensated for the reduction in gas demand. Well, thanks for that. I think that gives us a well. It's still on a, a you know, finely balanced, as you say, and uh, we could see volatility return quite quickly with one or two events and uh, a, a cold forecast for the for the coming winter. Mm. You know, it all feels quite long away as we're in the in the height of summer. But um, okay, so some of what you've highlighted there, this complexity, this shifting of energies. You know, and and one person capturing lower carbon energy in consequently means in a world of increasing demand, other people using more carbon intensive energy. We've covered that on coal episode itself, mm. and that is the complexity around the the energy transition. And your energy perspectives for this year put it in the context of walls and and bridges. Can you, before we talk about sort of the various challenges, both structural and temporal, in achieving this? Can you just help us understand some of the context and some of the goals? Because obviously Europe itself and many European companies have set up some really stringent targets around 2030 and 2050, all in the context of trying to prevent you know, major rises in temperature. But already there's this feeling that kind of the, the lower goals of 1.5 degrees Celsius are just, we're just going to go through them. Can you just set us some goals in terms of what people are trying to achieve with respect to temperatures and what that might mean in terms of emissions? Yeah, well, it, this is a building on on climate science and uh, and uh, the reports from the International Panel on Climate Change (IPCC) with the associated costs of uh, expected costs, if you like, expected consequences of of different types of temperature increase towards twenty one hundred. And this is about reducing the carbon, avoiding the carbon concentration in the atmosphere to continue to increase, and then ultimately taking it down again if we were to overshoot some of these thresholds, right? So that's where you're coming from. And then we have a carbon budget that is uh, that is uh, believed to be 
consistent with different types of temperature increases towards uh, 2100 and and uh, one number that is out there is the 450 parts per million of carbon concentration which should be should be uh, in line with a one and a half degree temperature increase with a 50 percent probability and then in order to get there you have to at some point stop carbon emissions total you have to go to zero because as long as carbon emissions continue to be positive, the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere will continue to rise for long periods because the, the, the impact of, of CO2 in the, in the atmosphere stays there for many, many years. So as long as CO2 emissions are positive, which they are significantly, and especially if they continue to increase, then, the, then uh, we will not reach these ambitions. And, and uh, with carbon concentrations at current levels, we have in our forecast scenario, which we call walls, come back to that, we have uh, the world passing the threshold for the one and a half degree target warming already in around 10 years, early in the 2030s. And that's a scenario that contains a lot of energy transition uh, and changes and a lot of energy and climate policies as well. It's definitely not a business as usual scenario, but we still pass that threshold. So, so that means that uh, that the urgency of uh, of doing this and do and at the same time the necessity of having to do this in a in a world that will continue to grow in terms of GDP, purchasing power, population, and and in order to do it in a just way is uh, it becomes even more difficult uh, the longer the longer we wait, if you like. Yeah. So the, and there's 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 so much in that, and I know from obviously our prior discussions to starting the recording like you know the, the the deep complexity here and it's amazing in some senses how how little of that complexity is understood more broadly in the public and and so forth and and almost how sort of talking about some of this complexity uh, a lot of it sits outside of the energy industry itself mm. right and um, when we talk we're going to come on to talk about permitting and so forth there's sort of almost now a sort of a heresy-like response if if someone sort of highlights it, but you know, even and again, even in the context of very ambitious goals like you've just mentioned. But let, let's sort of let's talk about sort of in the context of that the walls and and bridges, walls being the, the slowing, the disconnecting of of how this is achieved, and the the bridges essentially being the best case scenario where everything's really motoring. Mm-hmm. First of all, let's start on, the, I guess, the easiest stuff. You know, where are we at in kind of that levelized cost of energy of renewables against conventionals? And is, is that a battle that's still being won? Uh, can you talk to that first? Yeah, well, on levelized cost of energy, I guess, uh, the short, I mean, the short-term development here has, has gone in to some extent in the, in the wrong direction for parts of the technologies because of the supply chain issues and, uh, and the bottlenecks that we're facing, the cost increases, the underlying inflation. But still, you see that uh, things like uh, like large scale uh, solar, solar and electricity, and and to some extent also uh, parts of the wind spectrum as well can can very well compete at the margin with other sources of electricity. But the problem with 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 levelized cost of energy estimates is that you don't take into account the full system costs, right? So so you so you have to think about the, uh, the larger electricity system run on intermittent sources. You need backup, you need storage, you need balancing systems, you need more grids. So when you and all that has to happen. It's also about uh, so so but but definitely on on renewable electricity the development goes very fast. It goes in the right direction, fortunately. 
we're spending now, according to IEA, we're spending $1.7 on, on clean energy for every dollar we spend on investing in fossil fuels. That's good news for the ability to provide an alternative to fossil fuels that would allow consumers then to reduce their demand. We, can, we will not change from fossil fuels as consumers until we have an alternative. And in order to provide that alternative, we need massive investments in those alternatives. On the electricity side, that is going in the right direction, but not with significant or sufficient speed. IA also told us that, that if we're to get there, the investment um, quotient, if you like, will have to be one to nine. So for every dollar spent on fossil fuels, we would have to spend $9 by 2030 on, on different investments in the clean energy space. And, and that's just to, to provide much more electricity. And then we have to incentivize the move towards, toward, to, towards more electricity. And that's about moving people away from, from molecules, uh, using gas for heating. So you have, then you, you use electricity for heating, et cetera. And, and, and of course, this, these are slow processes by nature. Capital equipment that we use when we, we use energy has long lifetimes. So we, have to, uh, so we have to wait, if you like, until somebody decides to invest in a new type of equipment until we, until we then evaluate the, the, the alternatives. Replacing a, a, a furnace in a steel plant with something that can run on hydrogen instead of coal, that, that will happen once we have the hydrogen available, but it would also have to wait to happen until we are in a, in a situation where we have to replace that furnace. So there's also the long lead times, mm. the long lifetimes, if you, if you like. It takes a while. We just had the news of a, of a very large contract for new aircraft being ordered by Air India from Airbus. That's uh, 500 new planes being delivered around 2025 and onwards. Those planes will be using liquid fuels for very, very long. So, and they will fly for, for 20, 25 years onwards, right? So, so that's mm. one of the, the, an energy system that grows, that has long lead times. So all the good news on electricity will have to be balanced against the stickiness the slow, slow moving of this super tanker of a global energy system that keeps growing. We've, we've covered this angle quite a few times, both in kind of the micro detail around the specific supply chains for batteries or, or whatever it might be. But on a broader scale, when we turn out to the supply chain to, to convert, as you say, that entire energy infrastructure to an electron economy, there's sort of these two issues, if you'd like, that I see. One is the, the nature of those supply chains and where they sit from a geopolitical competition, et cetera, et cetera. And we've, we, I think this week there was a huge report about the, just the scale and momentum that Chinese renewables have had and the contribution to production, electricity production there. Obviously, lots of those supply chains sit in China. Secondly, it's just the sheer scale of the lift as well mm. that is probably going to take a lot more time than we expect, just this sheer amount, volumes of new infrastructure, of materials that need to be mined. We sort of see Robert Friedland call the clarion call on copper each day on social media, etc. Can you just give us a few words around that piece? Yeah, that, no, that is uh, definitely something that, uh, that we should uh, be concerned with. It's... Uh, it, it, it's up, one of the things that have to happen here is a, is a, is a significant scale-up of the total global capacity to, to mine rare earth elements, process, uh, refine, and transport them in as an energy-efficient way as possible. 
And you have to do that within the context of, of some of these resources that we need are concentrated geogra geograph in geography, so ge geographically, prone to geopolitical conflict in and by themselves. There's a potential for the owners of these resources to, to monopolize them or, or dominate them. Indonesia has for an example called for a cartel like OPEC on nickel. We just had the, the Chilean administration tell us that they were thinking about nationalizing their lithium resources. Probably won't happen, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a signal that dominant players here will, have a, will, will play a role in a world where, where, where we are still in a situation of geopolitical tension. Uh, the dominance of China in some of these, uh, the whole, I mean, the whole supply chain of this, which is, goes all the way from mining to their control and their control of mining to the control of the processing and, and refining and then the ultimate production of the equipment as well is one issue. But, uh, but if you think about the, the need to increase the output of many of these resources five to ten times, so five to tenfold increase over the next 15 years, it's it's also pretty clear that we we can even in a situation where we where we geopolitically trusted china and where we were in a very benign situation we probably couldn't rely on china to provide all of that for us because their capacity to produce these things their demographic dividend is not what it used to be they're a middle-income country they won't be the cheapest place to do this so we would have to look elsewhere anywhere which is what the inflation reduction act in the united states also stimulates right so 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 this is about finding ways to do this as efficiently as possible finding the right resources the the density of the mineral business in terms of how much usable material that you take out of a mine compared to the total amount of mass you take out is uh, is very low right so so this is about finding resources with uh, with sufficient density as well that it can be useful for us we will probably have to start looking for minerals on the sea bottom as well and then it has to be done sustainably we have to think about the energy use in the whole process here so so, so this is will happen it is happening but but the challenge of, of it of making it happen at sufficient scale and speed is is uh, one of the things that i worry about mm, mm. There's, what is fascinating just struck me when you talk about sort of this idea of setting up cartels around nickel and stuff, the technologies aren't all so set either, right? I mean, if 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 one particular metal becomes prohibitively expensive, we are going to just move mm -hmm. to different chemistries like LFPs, for example. Yeah, I think it might be a bit early to start trying to corner markets here, but it does bring us on to this interesting, almost philosophical context of the amount of energy consumed in the West, and China we should throw in there now as well, their carbon footprint's pretty high, it's vastly higher than the global south. Mm. So it's also this idea of how do you, you know, to achieve a just transition, you've got to sort of essentially push some of that energy use over to the global south and consequently lower it in, in the developed west. And so okay, just, that is a mind-bogglingly challenging task from a policy standpoint, from a behavioral standpoint, from a human condition standpoint. Can you just talk to us and help us understand sort of how energy would need to shift around the world to get to these 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 goals? Yeah, I know, I know. I think, and that's also one of the it's one of the ethical issues around this as well. It's uh, and 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 there's a reason why we have 17 sustainable development goals, and, and number one being the elimination of poverty, and and number 10 being the elimination or the reduction of income inequalities. And the reason why we use much more energy in the West uh, compared to the global South is not that we are energy inefficient. It's because we're so much richer than they are. Per capita GDP in, in the industrialized countries on average, uh, 
is uh, 20, 25 times higher, at least, than that of the average per capita GDP in Africa, as an example. That's why we use much more energy. And then the problem becomes, if you want to do something about uh, a just transition, what that would entail is an income transfer, a significant financing exercise or an income transfer, uh, reduced purchasing power, if you like, in the West and towards the global South. Possibilities of growth, consumption growth, with associated increases in energy demand and the ability to transit quickly to renewable energy, sustainable energy. But in just in doing that in a situation now where the energy efficiency is much lower in the poor parts of the world relative to rich parts of the world. So for every dollar we move out of the out of the West, uh, we reduce our energy demand somewhat as a consequence of that. But then the dollar is being used in in the poor parts of the world where the energy efficiency is only one third of what it is in the West. That would lead to an increase in energy demand that that move in itself. And given that fossil fuels are still dominating, we're still talking about 80% of the of the global energy mix being fossil, that leads to emission increases. And as a consequence, we can't reach the climate targets because we're going to, or at least we have to, we, we're going to do an overshoot, which makes it more difficult to bring the emissions further down again. So, and that's, that's one of the, what we call the ultimate dilemma here, is that achieving a just transition within the context of extremely tight carbon budgets is very, very difficult. What's the wall? I mean, that's the wall. What's the bridge there? I mean, which body t- tackles this? And <laughs> what, what, how do you tackle that? Well, I, well I, I don't have the answer to that, to be honest, because in our bridges scenario, where we stay within the one and a half degree target, we show what that takes. Uh, we think it is technically possible, but it is not very probable especially since it requires a type of global cooperation and and finding smart common solutions uh, in a scale and speed which is very very difficult to to see right now but in that scenario uh, we do achieve the emission reductions but we have to admit that we do not do wonders for for reducing per capita income differentials between the poor and the rich uh, we tried that a couple of years back where where we had a conscious choice of assumptions where where we allowed per capita GDP to grow significantly faster in the emerging economies uh, and, and pull down the growth, if you like, in the in the industrialized world as a, as a way of signaling that that would potentially be part of the financing agreement within the Paris Agreement. When we try that, we ended up with a scenario that would deliver something like a 1.7 degree uh, warming, 1.8. So that is, uh, that, and, and I don't think a lot of other scenarios that are, consistent with these tightest climate targets have a solution for that. I was say, well, that's especially when you sort of earlier on, you talked about the longevity of this infrastructure, right? All of the secondhand cars from the West go to the global South and the same with all the rest of the equipment, yes. right? So you've, you know, it's, we're already in that, you know, there's, well, my point being, there's already this sort of inertia built into the system. Yeah. Mm, there is. The, the other massive wall which again seems like especially we, we covered this in really in the context of the u.s but this permitting and and the thing you said to me the world has gone from nimbyism not in my backyard to to banana <laughs> can you yes can you can you talk to that one yeah well it's a you know it's a it's probably a, i mean it is a joke and it's probably not relevant all over the place but a, but a banana is an acronym for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything 
and uh, from NIMBYism where we worried about having infrastructure pipelines, wind turbines, solar panels, gas and oil pipelines for that matter, trunk lines for power in our own backyard or nearby where we live or work or stay. A banana type of world also is that is reflecting the, the fact that that people that do not live in our neighborhood are also concerned with the type of investments, the type of environmentally infringing, if you like, capital equipment put in place to provide energy or or infrastructure. And and that has to be overcome because what we're uh, what we're facing here is uh, is something that is uh, in many ways uh, capital intensive. It is also uh, providing electricity efficiently means that the production of electricity should take place relatively close to the use of that electricity because uh, because transporting electricity over long distances are are still inefficient and costly. So that w- would mean that you have the wind power towers, the, the wind turbines, uh, the, the solar parks and so on, relatively close to population centers for a, for a while. This is about then, and it's about uh, increasing the size of the grid, both local and, and uh, regional grids. Uh, it's about building pipelines for hydrogen transport, uh, CO2 transport, etc., etc. Permitting processes for these types of investments typically take a while. And, and there are very good reasons for that. This is about democratic processes. Uh, this is about taking into consideration uh, relevant environmental concerns, uh, transporting electricity from a wind turbine in the North Sea through a UNESCO protected wetland area on the coast of, uh, of uh, one of the neighboring countries, and then putting in place a hydrogen factory, electrolysis factory on that coastline. Uh, has environmental consequences uh, mm. for animals and for for wetlands and 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 those types of processes typically take a long time to get through right and then that has changed a bit in Germany now in terms of regasification terminals because they urgently needed that to to be able to bring the LNG ashore and then you go through a federal state like the United States a federal country like the United States or Germany for that matter also being a federal state uh, there are several layers of decision making processes that you have to handle and and that slows this down. Building a trunk line of electricity through Germany from north to the south typically takes five to eight years mm. to get through just the you know the permitting and then investing. With the carbon budget notion, that is what is the, we, we, in a sense we don't have time to wait for that. Yeah, and and that has consequences. It's fascinating, right? isn't it? Because there is this dichotomy, this internal tension between a carbon budget and broader environmental degradation goals, right? Because it's not just putting solar parks next to communities. It's also allowing digging out the sides of mountains in Utah and Colorado or or the Carpathians or whatever it might be. There's a whole supply chain that's needed, and all of that is going to create environmental degradation. And that is, you know, you that is where you come to the, the 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 policy side, the planning side, where they're looking at both angles, and it's it's you know, there's almost this tyranny of the carbon budget, and uh, and the, the, I just don't feel like the public awareness has caught up with that that we are going to have to make these trade offs, sacrifice both as individuals and as groups, and good to get you to talk to that, but also, you know, where does nuclear fit in in on this? It just strikes me that that sort of sits sort of ground zero of this permitting challenge and this conflict, this internal challenge between, you know, yes, environmental degradation, storage issues, all of this, you know, mining the uranium and so forth, but actually in terms of carbon goals, it fits really nicely. Yes, it does. 
No, and, and to be fair, I mean, what, what we have to also what we have to look at is, of course, that that uh, continuing with a with a fossil dominated energy mix also would require significant investments, of which some of which also have the same type of of, of concerns, but typically much more energy per unit invested. So it's so so you don't have the same local footprints often. And it, and then the same goes for 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 nuclear. Uh, it's a you know it's a, it's costly. Uh, it's risky. At least the perception is that it's risky. It has a relatively low area footprint per uh, kilowatt hour produced. But uh, but it but it so far it's it's taken forever to build the most uh, or the sort of most recent nuclear uh, power plants of scale in in Europe. There's there are very clear political decisions that we want to reduce that capacity. And, and then what do we do? But of course, I mean, we think that we need significantly more nuclear in order to to balance the electricity mix, uh, go, or to, to make that as at, at least uh, less challenging in the future, because you you get that base load type of electricity production from nuclear, and then you have less less of the energy demand that has to be served by by more intermittent sources that you can't control, mm. and and uh, and doing that requires. A massive change, both in policy and the willingness to do it. We will also have to develop the technology in terms of these so-called small modular reactors that everybody's talking about, but we haven't seen a lot of yet. Hey, um, hey. And and the existing nuclear fleet, both in the United States, uh, in Europe, and and somewhere else, is getting very old. Yeah, forty years so is just the average. To, we had a for, yeah, Michael, typically Michael when did we last build a uh, yeah when did we last build a nuclear facility? So increasing nuclear generation which most likely will have to happen in asia but also in 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 the middle east but but uh, at a global level also means you have to take account of, of reducing the capacity or the generation from the existing fleet because that has to be phased out so you have to replace the existing fleet plus build new stuff in order to have more nuclear globally in in 2050 than we have today yeah, there are obviously some hopefully some technological advances with using salts rather than water, you know, all that good stuff, which we will be yes. covering, um, which is exciting, right? But again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, you said, well, it's the, it's the it's obviously the the permitting, how long it takes, but also the risk, and then it's no actually perceived risk. It's again the sort of the 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 sacrifices and the public awareness that needs to be built in order for this transition yeah. to happen. And I just I just don't don't see it. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, but we, so far we've really been talking about things that are common, I think, to everywhere and essentially every sort of supply chain involved. You then throw all this into a world where you've got attempted coups by Wagner, you've got a pretty powerful OPEC, you've got you know all of this... You know, we're going from sort of a unipolar world and a very globalized world of the the 90s and the 2000s into quite a different environment. Suddenly, where you know we are in deglobalization, we're seeing that you know uh, destabilizing trade routes, policy uncertainty. I mean, goodness knows, you know what 
a change in administration in the US would do to the IRA. And obviously, that's a factor companies had to be thinking about. So there's so much volatility in policies out there. And then all these geostrategic challenges. Can you talk to that? And, you know, that must be a front and foremost of thought for most of the you know, oil majors like Equinor when they're thinking about how do they participate in this transition? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a part of our uh, our surroundings. Uh, it leads to to relatively cautious uh, evaluations, if you like, of different types of risks that we have to deal with when we put money down for for new investments in in either in regions that might be might be prone to instability or to changing trade uh, flows, changing trade policies. It's about the future of markets uh, many years after we have started investing. In a world where we don't trade with each other uh, or with, with someone that we don't like or don't trust, we do not exchange technology. We do not uh, openly give away good solutions that we have found to someone else. Part, part, of, part of the research that is needed here are... It's, it's like a public good in a sense that somebody has to take on the cost of this. And then once you once you figure it out, then then it should be shared with a lot of other players uh, after a period of patents or whatever. And if that doesn't happen because we don't trust uh, the counterparty, the development here will be slower than it otherwise would have been. And that's why we think in a, in a scenario where we are actually achieving some of these climate targets that that can take that can only take place at sufficient speed in in a world that is very benign. And of course, that is very far away from where we are now. Uh, so we will have to deal, there, a lot of good things will happen we will, because we will also see that, for instance, security of supply and decarbonization and affordability, those three elements of the energy trilemma are not always in a trilemma. It's, you can actually achieve uh, decarbonization and, and increased security of supply in some parts of the world by using your own domestic resources, uh, moving away from imported coal or imported gas to domestically generated renewable electricity, then you can achieve both. Because the, and and some of these renewable or the most of the renewable energy sources are very local. Mm. So so, but in other parts of the world, that's not the case. And and then in a world where we don't trust each other, then that will slow down the development yeah. relative to what is needed. I mean, it, it, prima facie makes sense for Europe, right? Um, but then you sort of throw in the supply chains to actually build the batteries and so forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a lot of tentacles there that, that are in competition, particularly in resources in Africa and so forth. But as you say, that trilemma for the US, it's just, well, we, we're not going to touch renewables. We're just going to stick with our vast reserves of uh, hydrocarbons, for example. It, it yeah, is, it is but, a tr- but which... Yeah, no, no, but they, but they can also be turned. Uh, hydrocarbons can be turned into to carbon-free sources of energy once you once you take away the carbon, right, the, uh, through co- carbon capture and storage and so on. So, so, so that but that is part of it. Uh, I think the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States uh, will gradually have significant impact also on the on the energy mix in the United States, but it's going to cost money, uh, and um, the results will come once we have sort of overcome the the consequence of a very long and large scale deindustrialization both in North America and in Europe we've moved a lot of our the global production capacity to East Asia and anything we have to do anything we will do here in the energy transition is something we have to build a lot large part of it contains a lot of steel 
and and uh, bringing that back that capacity to to manufacture stuff is urgently needed uh, also because we need more of it so we need we cannot rely only on asian supply chains to the same extent we have and uh, it will take time mm. and uh, and we'll have to have people go back into to working and investing in you know manufacturing jobs after having a long period of of deindustrialization in both in not all parts of europe but in parts of europe and in and in large parts of the united states as well yeah all of those uh, financial advisors who uh, are coming up against the five percent interest rate back to work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> might have to cut that. Um, so the, you know, I guess throughout this we talked about sort of this also this dilemma of public awareness or trilemma even of public awareness, the, the tragedy of the commons and sort of the public good, and then kind of the individuals' behaviours who still want to have the nicest cars with the nicest trims and all of the the material consequences of that mm. it still feels to me like there is a lot of simplicity in thinking and you know yeah you you spoke about energy security i mean it's fascinating how quickly the world was reminded of that and thinking shifted back from almost sort of a utopian like thinking you know in the consequence of the pandemic to suddenly realizing you know inflation food security energy security and they're almost one and the same as as Doomberg points out energy security is always going to take primacy right and and it both in the in the household and at the at the country level and you know any kind of geopolitical shocks that come along vastly delay the transition for just that reason yes and and uh, i mean we have large parts of the world that do not have any energy security and that's the energy poor parts of the world and and where uh, where family members will have to spend most of the day to to find water and uh, and wood to provide the necessary energy to cook food uh, in the evening and then the focus on energy security among us in in the richest parts of the world is such that we're we're reacting extremely to lack of energy to security or to 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 threats of blackouts or whatever it is and and because it it threatens um, our economy it threatens our ability to make the wheels go round it threatens our ability to solve issues uh, to communicate to travel and um, and then there is a, how do we change that and how do we make ourselves more resilient to using less energy and that's a lot about uh, energy efficiency it's uh, it's uh, to some extent replacing fossil fuels with electricity in for instance transport i mean the, at the end level at the end user level you then use much less energy than and an electric vehicle is much more efficient than an internal combustion engine car in the end user part of the chain there are examples of uh, you know you have we have a western european lifestyle in many ways uses much less energy than an than an american lifestyle um if you compare the the cities of barcelona and atlanta uh, they're roughly the same size in terms of people but the energy use in barcelona is one third of that of atlanta uh, and i would wager that the quality of life is at least as high in Barcelona as in Atlanta, but 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 the lifestyles are very very different in terms yeah. of size of houses, distances traveled, etc., and and means of transportation, if you like. Yeah, but that's fascinating, isn't it? Because 
we don't have time to talk about it here really but you know firstly it's a it depends does efficiency have a champion or do you have true end user price signals that allow changes in behaviors which you don't you know gas is very much a domestic policy issue for the biden administration it's also a consequence of policies. I mean, this crazy idea that uh, sedan cars get taxed more than SUVs because SUVs are trucks and you know, all of that's, you know, I've I just driven around the UK and the car I rented, which was a nice car, was unavailable at that engine size. In fact, the whole model is just unavailable in the US because the engine's too small. Right. Yeah. yeah I think it was yeah, like yeah, a one point no, eight. The, the same liter. same car has a much yeah, yeah the has, same car a five has a much smaller engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that aside, exactly. Lots of lots of challenges there. Can you just help, you know the other bit of this is sort of the, the the back the output of this is obviously those temperatures and we kind of alluded that you know in your wall scenario what which basically is the current scenario even with an optimistic slant on it I would argue um, is we're going through one point five degrees. You know these things aren't all so linear. Yeah, no, no, of course, and and, and as, but but if if we take the emission trajectory and the accumulated emissions in our wall scenario, uh, it's very far away from being a typical business as usual scenario. It's uh, you can say that it's uh, IPCC's uh, data points and forecast indicate that such a scenario is is a two point two degree scenario if we go all the way out to twenty one hundred. Which is much better than than what we thought some years back. It's also much better than than the UN most recent uh, expected uh, scenario. So it's very far away from being a business as usual. It's a you know it's a fifty percent improvement in annual energy efficiency development. As an example, it's uh, basically about uh, uh, a global economy in twenty fifty being almost twice the size of the current global economy, but not using more primary energy. Uh, so we're so we're able to to satisfy the energy demand of about two billion more people in an economy that is twice as large as now, but using the same amount of energy, primary energy as we do today. So there's a massive energy transition going on there as well, and that's yeah. in spite of these geopolitical consequences. And and I think that illustrates also very much that that all the talk about reaching these climate ambitions and climate targets, we should we should not let that end up be where the the best outcome. And stop being the enemy of the good, because all the things that are taking place in the wall scenario are good, and they're moving us in the right direction. And we just need to do more of them. Mm. So we shouldn't despair, in a sense, but we have to also have a serious conversations of some of the other dilemmas here. How do we address other sustainable development goals? How do we reduce inequalities if if we're concerned with that? There's something about the the overall use of resources uh, from a finite planet. And then it's about balancing those different. Uh, As you said, even in that wall scenario, there's there's there is a significant change across all of these challenges that we've highlighted, right? Whether it's policies permitting globalization, technologies, the trade-offs inherent in environmental degradation versus uh, carbon reduction. You know what if the world sort of continues, really, as we've seen the last two years, which is essentially increasing carbon emissions. I mean, what does that scenario play out like? Is that sort of, uh, you know, the, the four degree scenario in the next 20 years is sort of uh, unthinkable? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, the likelihood of, of a scenario that is that has a carbon concentration equivalent to three and a half to four and a half degree warming by 2100, that like that scenario is very unlikely. And it has the development over the last years have, have, have signaled that that is something we shouldn't worry too much about. 
but but of course uh, of course we have to make sure that we we continue the type of development we've seen over the last year and then last years and then increasing try to increase the speed of that uh, there's a lot of improvement that will now come from some of the technological improvements that we've seen over the last decades uh, the ev penetration in new car sales in china will have an impact uh, as an example but the worry is of course that it that it's not going to happen sufficiently quickly and and you can get setbacks uh, part of, partly because uh, we don't have you know by by eliminating russia from anything in terms of international trade and and uh, exchange of good ideas we've also taken away one ninth of the world's landmass for as as a source of carbon sinks as a source of minerals as a source of of energy that means that that delivering on some of these things will be harder than it otherwise uh, would have been and mm. uh, and i think we should always prepare for surprises uh, the good the good news is that the uh, human beings will be smarter <laughs> going forward we will still have good ideas there will be productivity development there will be purchasing power increases as a consequence of that but there will also be solutions found that we can't think about any yet right and both in terms of energy efficiency demand management ultimately the macroeconomic benefits of digitalization once we get once we understand how to do that without increasing the use of electricity too much right yeah. because that's one of the paradoxes is that some of these solutions is, that is... use massive amounts of energy yeah, yeah yeah bitcoin mining is the most extreme and useless example i guess but, but uh, it's but still those gpus uh, all the whether you're using it to mine bitcoins or whether you're using it for an ai query they're incredibly energy yes. intensive and we've actually got chris miller on talking about chip wars coming up and some of that aspects okay just a final couple of yes. points and I, I'm, I'm finding this fascinating one is of course that a lot of this heavy lifting is reliant on the global energy majors right and transforming themselves mm. kind of using the mba analogy from sort of the the coach and, and carriage company into the car company right making that transition there's also an ambivalence to how they're being treated, right? In in sense of they need a war chest to be able to accomplish and invest in these technologies that also have a lower IRR, which is another challenge to that, right? You know, it's a very different economic mm. output from a the liquid gold that is 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 finding oil offshore compared to solar parks, but also in a time when we're seeing windfall taxes and. And, and are trying to reduce that war tax and, and a public outcry against them solving the energy problems of the last year, right? I mean, it mm. seems that's a real challenge as well. Yeah, and I, th I think it's the challenge that the the global or the the parts of the global energy industry that it, that are that are, that is listed on uh, Western exchanges, right? I mean, both the European and the American majors and and uh, with some of the companies also and and uh, and some of the national energy companies as well from from asia as well it's a it's a challenge that is being taken very seriously it's a challenge where we see the absolute necessity for companies like ours a sector like ours to go in and and uh, and try and do something about it use our capacity our knowledge our experience our capital to gradually shift the investments uh, we have the knowledge of uh, doing investments in many different countries, both onshore and offshore. We have the, the project management type of capability. We have the links to the supplier industry where we can bring with us uh, the ones that we need to, to put in place the necessary investments. There's a lot of similarities between a pipeline, between different pipelines, irrespective of which transports oil, gas, or ultimately hydrogen, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, there's a, there's a risk reward type of, of a judgment that has to be made here. 
and and to the for some of these uh, projects where we, where we need uh, a government subsidy to make them sufficiently profitable uh, or we need a guarantee for price uh, to make it investable then also part of that will eliminate some of the risks and therefore make it possible for us to accept a slightly lower unadjusted rate of return so the risk reward balance might be acceptable at the margin but there is a there's, there's also something, of course, then about being put in a position where we actually can do this while we continue to provide the necessary oil and gas and coal for that matter, but in particular oil and gas for the, for the international oil and gas companies. If we were to completely shift our investments immediately, the world would run out of oil and gas. Supply would fall faster than any demand projection. And as I said earlier, uh, we need to provide the alternatives for consumers or users of energy uh, so that they can reduce their demand for fossil fuels before we reduce that supply. And that's a very difficult uh, balance now with with uh, handling uh, activists and activist shareholders uh, f- f- striking the right balance of providing a credible in- energy transition plan, uh, making the necessary investments in uh, low carbon solutions and renewables in a situation where we frankly don't have enough projects we don't have places to put these money in large parts of the developing world, as an example, in emerging economies. One of the frustrations is that the money doesn't go there. What we're dealing with are projects in, in North America and in Europe to a large extent that are investable, uh, where there's been a lot of competition for participating in those and where the returns have been bid down. And so we need more projects. We need more we need, need more possibilities. And we need that in, in countries where the institutions are lacking, uh, where the tax systems are are immature, uh, where the electricity markets are uh, unregulated or non-existing, where there's no grid, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, and that's why some of the frustrations for us is, is how much of that are we able to do over the next five to 10 years yeah. while we still continue to provide essential oil and gas to a world that definitely will continue to need it for quite a while. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so challenging. It's very insightful what you say about yeah of course the global south the rest of the world the developing world doesn't have the necessary structures and so forth for you to go into them from a from a legal standpoint from a property rights standpoint from an infrastructure standpoint and you, that, that's incredible risk you know oil majors are used to taking these types of risks and they're best prepared to do it but if the financing and investment isn't flowing to you you've got pressure you know the just stop oil stuff and so on wearing their mm. their vinyl orange jackets made from oil uh having made from oil yeah having driven there in a car made you know etc cetera, etc cetera. anyway <laughs> that aside yeah um, no no and i said <laughs> but uh, and also that on this need for oil and gas i mean in, even in our one and a half degree scenario the the bridges scenario uh, we have a we have oil demand like ia by the way in in 2050 still at 25 million barrels per day yeah and out of that, roughly 80% of that remaining oil demand, so 20 million barrels per day, is expected to go as feedstock into the global petrochemical industry. And it will be a lot more expensive by then, right? We, we had Joel Cousin from the uh, IEA talking about their sort of forward range planning. And yeah, this is, I mean, it's just not going to be... The, the, this, the history of transitions is one of increasing volatility etc etc just one final comment i know we're running on a little bit on this one but i find it fascinating 
uh, with your economist hat on, and I, I better get the definition right so Nassim Taleb, if he's listening, doesn't write in. But, you know, there, there are these black swans. And I've just finished reading Peter Frankopan's book, The the Earth Transformed, which is all about sort of the interplay of climate change and, and civilization. Mm. And and sort of the consequent concerns of civilizations about climate change, which has been ever present too. And if anyone knows Peter Frankopan, I'd love to love to have him on. But there are these black swans, low low light, low probability, but really high impact events. Mm. Is there any of those in your forward panel? Yeah, we what call some of them the black swans and some of them key uncertainties that would potentially have a slightly higher probability, but also relatively high impact that we have not included, if you like, in our scenarios. And and things like a tighter, tougher geopolitical stance between the large powers in the world leading to an armed conflict would, would of course, upend and change a lot of the things that we're talking about here. We have not included a true breakthrough for fusion energy in the sense that it would be scalable and visible in the global electricity and slash energy mix by already by 2040. We, we, that's a low probability, but a, but a high impact type of event if it were to happen. Uh, mass migration has very large impact both on the region from which people migrate and, and to, for the regions to which people migrate. And, and we haven't done a lot of that in terms of population movements and so on. And that could be caused by climate change or water shortage or food or war. So that's the type of event uh, that we haven't included. Uh, one of the key uncertainties that we're we're focusing on is because we also because we do not really know a lot about where it will bring us, but that's the, the continued development of artificial intelligence in a world where some of the framework conditions for regulating it are not there, just like they're not for climate change. So, uh, you know, a world of geopolitical conflict, uh, a demographic, uh, democratic deficit that is larger than, than any time in the last uh, 40 years. So they're about uh, relatively concentrated or massively concentrated powers on, in a few business leaders. That combination is not very conducive to, to regulation of artificial intelligence. And, and therefore, what would, what would an unregulated development of artificial intelligence potentially entail, both in terms of energy use, Consequences for humanity, consequences for jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's uh, that's something we're thinking about, at least. And then you can, of course, think about many others. Mm. Well, and we're already seeing the U.S. banning Nvidia selling higher-powered GPUs to China as a result of concerns over that. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned the Earth transformed. I didn't really finish that thought because obviously one of the things that is unpredictable, but has been a major, the major driver of climate change throughout human history typically shifting climate cooling dramatically dramatic cooling has been mm -hmm. volcanoes you know and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> super cool and it's, uh, i had a few years back or some years back in that was on on my list of potential black swans was uh, an eruption of one of the super volcanoes yellowstone being one of them if and when that happens uh, we, we we might be uh, might be pleased to have a couple of degrees extra warming. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, I I remember myself the uh, some of the coldest winters in my lifetime were the winters of of 1981, 82, 82, 83 after the Mount Saint Helens uh, erupted. 
that's uh, of course that was a, a relatively small event compared to but uh, but that is uh, it's not it's not very easy to predict and uh, and uh, it happens when it happens in a sense right yeah just to add to the the doom and gloom but anyway okay well Eric it's been really <laughs> yeah. really interesting having you on I'd love to love to revisit in a year and see where we stand and I just think I don't think we've we it's not like we've talk, spoken solutions but I think highlighting and and sort of starting the discourse around these this myriad challenges that it all faces and uh, you know frankly the global leadership is going to need that just isn't present at the moment I don't feel to push some of these things through is it's uh yeah it's um it's 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 got its headwinds yeah, it, it does. But on the other hand, I mean, it's, I'm I'm now leaving for to go home because it's the afternoon here, and and you know, I'm gonna travel with the public transportation on an electric bus, <laughs> and and so in in micro environments, we see some of the necessary solutions here, both in terms of of electricity, more electricity use, uh, more use of electric transport, uh, compact cities where we don't have to travel as much. They're all there, but it's just about you know scaling it up, handling the growth in energy demand at the same time, the the economic growth and the necessary change in lifestyles. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of room for optimism as well, but it's and we shouldn't let the best become the enemy of the good. We we just have to continue working with the good solutions. Yeah. Meanwhile, I have to. I've been told by on text multiple times that I need to leave the house because they struck a main gas line outside which is pumping <laughs> thousands of cubic feet of natural gas into the air. So, uh, <laughs> you know, your your electric bus ride has just been offset dramatically by uh, the actions of people on Kipling Street. Anyway, well... It's oh, been, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good luck with that. Take care. Get out of the house. <laughs> it's uh, It's been good to talk, Ida. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.